Amen. It's a good word from Pastor Glenn, isn't it? And a great reminder for us that the impact of the gospel that we feel in this place extends far beyond the borders of our city and around the world. And what a privilege it is for us to partner with them to bring the good news to all who are hungry and will hear. Amen. Well, I've entitled today's message, You Are What You Eat. Now, you've probably heard that cliche before. And with our culture's fixation on nutrition and calorie counting and diet plans, you would guess, as I did, that it's a rather modern slogan. <clears throat> but turns out the phrase first showed up in a French medical journal almost 200 years ago. The author wrote, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. Clearly, we're not the first generation to make the connection between what we consume and the rest of our lives. But it can be hard to single out specifics because often the consequences of what we eat, good or bad, don't necessarily have an impact on us right away. Of course, sometimes it's very obvious. You don't need a call to the doctor or check on WebMD to make the connection between your late-night indigestion and the meat lover's pizza or atomic wings you ate at the game. If you've succumbed to the marketer's ploy, grabbed a Snickers in the checkout line, and eaten it quickly on the car ride on the way home, only to remember you have a severe peanut allergy, you better drive right to the ER. But oftentimes, the effects of what we consume can be so subtle that we miss the connection entirely. That was the experience of a group of early settlers in Jamestown, Virginia, who didn't realize they had dug their wells too close to the ocean. What they thought was fresh drinking water was actually diluted salt water. And tragically, the whole settlement died slowly from dehydration, all the while thinking they knew how to cure their thirst. What you eat and what you drink matters. And Jesus knew that. As the master communicator, he used the tangible example of bread that sustains our bodies to illustrate that he is the only true nourishment for our souls. As you know, Pastor Rock is taking a break from our study in Daniel until September, and I have the great privilege of opening our summer series entitled Jesus in His Own Words. For the next few weeks, we're going to take a deeper look at the seven I am statements of Jesus. So as we begin our journey together today, I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. There we read one of the few miracles included in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus used this miracle as the illustration for his declaration, I am the bread of life. When Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, on that Galilean hillside in the first century, many thought they had stumbled onto a lifetime meal ticket. But as Jesus explained who he truly is, the crowd moved from elation to offense. In fact, many were so scandalized, it became their tipping point. After the events we're about to study, they rejected Jesus altogether and refused to follow him anymore. Why? Let's start at the beginning so we might understand and apply the truth to our hearts as well. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence in this place, and I thank you for the privilege of breaking the bread of the word this morning. 
But I pray now, Lord, for a fresh infilling of your spirit that I might truly do that according to your plan and according to your agenda. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fall fresh on all of us, that our hearts would be soft, our ears would be open, and we would be attuned to what you are saying to us in this moment. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for your presence among us and ask you to receive all the glory. We pray in your name. Amen. And as we prepare our hearts and invite the Holy Spirit to move freely among us, may the Lord be with you. Amen. It was a pivotal moment in Jesus' earthly ministry. The crowds have been with him for many days during this time of extended teaching. Matthew tells us that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount and many parables. Momentum was building, and those who followed Jesus could feel it. So let's step into the scene. Jesus is sitting on the side of the mountain with his disciples. And we'll begin reading from the scriptures at verse 5. When John looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. You see, Jesus was aware of the crowd's needs, both spiritual and physical. And that awareness wasn't just born out of logic, it was born out of compassion. Matthew 9:36 says that in another instance, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knows all your needs. He knows who's physically hungry, he knows who's relationally malnourished, and he knows who's spiritually starved. And as he looks at you this morning, he looks at you through the lens of compassion. He knows everything about you, and Jesus loves you. He knows the minute details of your life. But what's different about his love is that Jesus knows the difference between what you think you need and what you truly need. And he wants to help you understand the difference, too. Jesus knew the flock that day needed food. He was probably hungry, too. Remember, he experienced everything that they did. He began by asking Philip for a suggestion. Now, Philip was from that area, and Jesus surmised that perhaps Philip would know the location of the closest Sam's Club or the local bakery outlet so he could feed the crowd. But all the while, Jesus knew what was coming. The text tells us that. But he didn't waste a teaching opportunity. Because Jesus knew his time with his disciples was short, and he invited them to learn by doing. This is often the way the Lord trains us. He asks us to join him in the work. Think of the thrill the disciples experienced as they handed out the miraculously provided bread. What an honor not to only witness the miracle, but also to help execute it. Now, the Lord doesn't need us to get things done. But God graciously invites us to join him in the work so that we might be more like him. We learn by doing. Jesus showed them that he did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples saw the crowds too that day. But notice, there's no mention of their concern for the crowd. In fact, The testimony of scripture is that the disciples were often more worried about keeping Jesus from the crowds rather than helping Jesus minister to them. But Jesus was a different kind of leader. 
and he invites us to follow his example of servant leadership and join him in the work of the kingdom. He'll use our willingness, he'll use our obedience, he'll use our skill and ability and combine them all to train us for the greater tasks ahead. Because Jesus didn't see the crowd as a problem to be solved, but a people to be rescued. And Jesus still is in the business of rescuing people. Jesus sees our problems, but he looks beyond them and sees us. We are the object of his affection. And so how disappointed he must be when we act as if he's our cosmic problem solver and not our savior. He isn't our Siri in the sky. He's our coming king. And Jesus wants us to come to him. He knows we need more than bread. He knows our real issues are spiritual at their core. But he begins with the physical. He's willing to start there. Let's pick up the text at verse 7. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Philip came up empty, but Andrew brought Jesus a boy with his lunch. It was a small meal attended, intended for a child, and barley was one of the cheapest grains available, so this was the food of the poor. Notice that the boy brought his meal to Jesus and not to the crowd. You know the rest of the story. Jesus received that small offering. He took that bread, and he made it enough. So much so that everyone there in the crowd that day, likely 15,000 of them, including women and children, was completely satisfied. I don't know what problem you're trying to solve with your own limited resources, but Jesus still provides in miraculous ways. Our small offerings, when placed in the hands of Jesus, become enough. So what are you holding so tightly in your fists? Jesus won't pry open your hands or peel back your fingers one at a time. He's asking you to trust him. He's asking you to release it to him. Release whatever you're clenching. Corey Ten Boom learned that in a concentration camp. She was a single woman in her early 50s when she was changed forever as the Germans swept into Holland, seizing Jewish men, women, and children, and sending them to the concentration camps. Corey's family were devoted followers of Christ, and they were hiding Jews in their home. But when they were betrayed by a friend, they too were taken captive. Corey managed to smuggle in a Bible, a sweater, and a small bottle of liquid vitamins with her into the camp. Her sister Betsy, who was often ill, was with her, and Corey knew that Betsy needed those vitamins to survive. Each night, Corey quietly administered a few drops of the vitamins on her sister's tongue. But as more women became sick from malnutrition, hard labor, and deprivation, Corey realized that they needed the vitamins too, and she reluctantly included them in her nightly routine. Corey knew that the vitamins wouldn't last more than a few weeks, if that, but to her utter shock, the little vial kept producing drops of vitamins night after night, just enough for each one. 
She would hold the bottle up to the light to see if she could tell how much liquid was left, but she could never see anything through the amber-colored glass bottle. When another inmate managed to smuggle in a larger bottle of vitamins, she brought it to Corey. And that night, Corey returned to her original small bottle, but it produced no drops of vitamins. It was dry. It was dry because Jesus had provided a fresh supply. It was the same for those who shared the lunch on that Galilean hillside. Jesus showed them that much that little is much when he is in it. The impact of Jesus' miraculous provision galvanized the crowd that day, so much so that after everyone had eaten and the leftovers had been gathered, the people began saying, verse 14, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Allow me to paraphrase their response. Oh, look, this Jesus guy is the one who's going to make Israel great again. Let's force him on the throne and install him as a new king of Israel. You see, they were looking for a politically-minded Messiah because they thought their biggest problem was Rome. But Israel didn't need a civil servant. They needed a savior. And so do we. Because spiritual problems can't be solved with earthly solutions. How often do we try and do just that? How often do we try to tell God how to move or what to do according to our specifications? How often do we mistake a problem or a need thinking it is only in the physical realm when at its core it's truly a spiritual one? And look at what happened. In response to their attempted manipulation, Jesus removed himself. And that's troubling to me. Could it be when I try to force Jesus into my own agenda, he has no choice but to step back? What was at the root of that crowd's attitude that day? What was at the root of their response? Was it pride? They were intending to plug Jesus into their agenda, but Jesus will never be played. Psalm 138 reminds us that though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble but keeps his distance from the crowd. They had a category for Jesus. They had them all figured out, and they were ready to jam him in to their expectation. During a season of loss and hurt, I allowed myself to do just that, and I interpreted what was at its core a spiritual problem as a physical one or earthly one. And I allowed my loss and my hurt to wallow up in a deep sense of anger. It took me by storm. It was consuming. It was a surprisingly forceful emotion. I was so angry I could spit. And I felt trapped. And in the midst of that helpless feeling, I wrongly assumed the only solution for my release of my anger lay in the hands of another. I could do nothing to quell the strong emotion that was consuming me. And on one hand, I was right. My problem could be solved by someone else, but it was not the person I thought. That summer, my kids, who uh, were faithfully involved in the Bible quizzing program, were memorizing 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. And as a dutiful mother, I was learning the verses right along with them. And one night, as I lay in bed, nursing the wound and rehearsing the hurt, 
I actually recited the scriptures out loud in my mind and applied them to my accuser. And the thing I said in my mind was, love keeps no record of wrong. And the Holy Spirit said to me, as if out loud, it's time. And I sat up in bed and, re and repented of my anger and received the forgiveness as I extended forgiveness. And the weight and the anger left forever. I was healed. Because, amen, because I recognized by the Holy Spirit's revelation that what I thought was an earthly problem was rooted in the spiritual, and it's then that I got release. Jesus wants to replace our version of events today just like he wanted to replace their version, that first century crowd's version of events, with the truth, the truth of who he was then and the truth of who he is now. For all of us. Read with me at verse 26. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus refused to let them stay in the physical, literal world. He wanted to blow the doors off who they thought he was so that they might be able to see him as he truly is. Jesus is not required to meet our expectations. If we are intent on following, we will submit to his expectations. But they were still stuck in a faulty understanding of how to earn God's favor. Let's look at their question. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. They saw the miraculous signs and were amazed, but they were not moved to faith. Why? Because miracles, signs, and wonders don't create saving faith. The crowd ultimately wasn't seeking Jesus. They were enthralled by the show. And Jesus tried to move them as he tries to move us from a self-focused, what's-in-it-for-me version of faith to a Jesus-focused, a Jesus-only version of faith. And so they asked Jesus, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus announced that he alone is the nourishment we need for eternal life. Eternal life can't be earned. It's a gift to be embraced. It's a new life to be experienced. But Jesus was doing more than linking himself to the miracle in the desert. He was creating a new character, a new category for himself. He was saying he isn't like that manna. He is the manna. Because unlike the manna that fed them for a time in the desert, Jesus offered them bread that would sustain them throughout all eternity. He offered himself. John 1, 17 tells us, For the law was given through Moses, 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus always begins with grace. It's a good thing because truth can be hard sometime. And here the grace he offered was food to eat, the tangible provision of a meal. And the truth he gave was the revelation that he is the bread of life. He met their immediate physical need as a way of helping them understand their true spiritual need. And let's look at how they responded. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say I came down from heaven? Why did the Jews grumble? Because Jesus was asking them to make the transition to move from sight to faith, from the physical to the spiritual. And they grumbled because they thought they knew Jesus. Him? They said, really? That's ridiculous. We've known him since he was a boy, the son of Mary and Joseph. I know all about him. And we can fall into the same trap because you can know all about Jesus but not know him. I traveled from South Central Pennsylvania where I was born and raised to Western Pennsylvania in college and spent my whole adult life here. And as soon as I had a new zip code in Western Pennsylvania, I became an official Steelers fan. (laughs) Now, I personally know a decent amount about Ben Roethlisberger. I know what he looks like from pictures. I'd recognize him on the street. He's a tall guy. He would probably be ahead above all the rest of the people there. I know he's been the Steelers quarterback for over a decade. He wears number seven. But I don't know Ben Roethlisberger. Knowing about Jesus is like looking at a warm, fresh loaf of bread. You can smell it. You can hold it and feel it. And as you break it, you can hear the irresistible crunch that gives way to the soft, doughy center. But if you refuse to eat the bread you'll have no, no way of knowing how it tastes. You'll have no way of knowing how you feel as you're nourished by it and you're sustained through your day because of it. To know Jesus is more than just to believe about him. It's to believe in him and experience him. Here's what James t- tells us in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demons know who Jesus is. They even shudder at the sound of God's name. But they do not have saving knowledge of him. And what's troubling is, so many who claim to follow reject the truth that Jesus is the bread of life because they deem his claim of exclusivity so offensive. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Not a side, not a slice of bread on the side dish of options for us. There is no other person, philosophy, mantra, or mindset that will bring eternal life. Jesus only. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor martyred for his faith in the last days of World War II, said this in his book, Life Together. Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Unbelief is sin. 
Jesus came to destroy sin and death, but first, Jesus had to convince a people who thought they were alive that they were actually dead. Just like I was before I came to saving faith in Christ, dead in my trespasses and sins. Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus always will be my only hope. There is no other way. I want to close with this tragic turn at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They were right. Jesus gave them a hard teaching. And when it became clear that it wasn't about free food with a sprinkle of the spectacular, most turned away. Notice that Jesus didn't beg them to stay. He let them go. And then he turned to his inner circle and asked, You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let those words of Peter's confession ring in your ears for a few moments. Can you make that same statement today? The disciples did not have all the answers. In fact, as you read the Gospels, sometimes they look confused more than they look enlightened. But Peter understood enough to declare that Jesus alone is the only source of eternal life. And because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that word stands. The mistake we're tempted to make in the modern church is to soften the message, to make it more palatable to the discerning palates of those who don't want the meal. Instead, they only want a taste. The truth is, a little nibble of Jesus will never nourish your soul. Are you going to eat from the world or take Jesus at his word and embrace him as the bread of life? Remember, you are what you eat. I want to take a moment here as we close and reflect and ask the question, how are you feeding your soul? What's your source? Are you indulging in the empty calories of the world's philosophies, priorities, and perspectives? Or are you nourishing yourself with Jesus, the bread that came down from heaven? If you realize you've been eating from the smorgasbord of the world's offerings and not nourishing yourself with the king, accepting the invitation to the feast and joining him there in the true meal that is Jesus. Be reminded this morning that Jesus still rescues. His invitation still stands. And he welcomes you to the table. Will you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the power of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that as you look at us, you don't look at a problem, you look at a people. And you're not trying to solve things for us, you're trying to rescue us. I pray, Father, we would have the courage and the boldness to take you at your word this morning and receive that rescue that comes only through Jesus Christ. And if there are those here this morning who have never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them and that they would step from darkness into light. 
It begins, Father, with that recognition. If you've brought recognition to us, those of us here this morning, I pray that we wouldn't leave without repenting and setting those sins behind us and then resolving to walk the Jesus road and be more like you. And so in the quietness of these moments, I want to pause and ask for that quiet moment of silence, of introspection, that we all let the word sink deep and allow the Holy Spirit to challenge us and change us according to his image. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good work of your word. I pray you would seal it for your will and your purposeful work in all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.